I'm Angela Kennecke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an award-winning investigative reporter. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old Emily. I'm going to begin this podcast with the day that Emily died. I'm going to tell you this story now so that later I can tell you about her life and about how I've been coping with her loss. The latest chapter in my life began on May 16th. It was one of those spring days, the kind you only get a handful of, especially in South Dakota. There were blossoms on the trees. That white cotton filled the air. Flowers were starting to bloom. I took some pictures, put them on my Instagram story of the blooming trees, and I wrote, Beauty is all around us. Little did I know, several hours later, my whole world would come crashing down upon me. It was a pretty normal day at work, but there was one odd thing about it. I was working on a story on overdoses, specifically Good Samaritan laws and overdoses, and how when people overdose in a group setting partying with friends, the Good Samaritan laws come into play. If they call for help, the other people won't get arrested. And it wasn't unusual for me to be working on a story on the opioid crisis. I'd done a lot of them for the past couple of years. And I knew there was a problem with my daughter. I just didn't know what. Ironically, we were planning an intervention because she just seemed out of it and things didn't seem right and her life wasn't going in the direction that it should have been. And I'd confronted her over and over and over again and she'd always said, no, I don't have anything wrong and denied. I knew about the marijuana. That was pretty obvious. And I'd later learned about some pills in the benzo class, like Xanax, But she swore to me she'd gotten off of those. I had no idea about the opioids. None whatsoever. So as I was working on this story on the opioid crisis, I really wasn't thinking that my daughter would die of an opioid overdose. I was thinking that something was wrong with her and that she wouldn't tell us about it and that we needed to get her help. And I was scared because a few days earlier, I had learned that one of her friends had died of an overdose. Now, I didn't know this friend. And I didn't know how he died or what the drug was. But on that very same day, I spoke with that young man's father as I worked on this story on Good Samaritan laws. I spoke with three parents who'd all lost children to overdose. One was my daughter's friend whom I didn't know. And he said, I warned all of these kids when they came to my son's funeral that this could happen to them if they didn't get help, if they didn't change what they were doing, if they didn't change their lives. The other parent I spoke to had a son who'd gone to the same elementary school as my daughter. He'd been clean for years. He'd been taking part in the recovery community for Hazelden, but he relapsed and he'd overdosed on 100% fentanyl. His friends were planning an intervention for that evening, but he had died in the afternoon. And the third parent I spoke to was a mother whom I talked to before about her daughter's overdose. That mother told me that her daughter overdosed in a drug house with a group of friends who cleaned up the area, and one of the boys called his mother before he called for help. Her daughter died. Now every day she times how long it would take her to get to that drug house from her house. Eight minutes. She could have been there in eight minutes. I was working on this grim story, but it was a beautiful day. 
and it never occurred to me that my daughter was using opioids or could overdose from opioids. I really thought it was a mix of benzos and marijuana. I was leaving work, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could go hiking together? So I text her, want to go hiking at Good Earth State Park? No response. I called her. No answer. Now this was unusual. Emily had always called me right away or texted me back because she knew I worried about her. But I told myself not to panic, and I waited a little bit, and I went home and had dinner with my family. And then I decided, since I hadn't heard back from Emily, that she must be with her friends, and I went to Costco to buy flowers to plant in my pots. A leaving Costco, I got a phone call. It was from her dad. He spoke in a tone I'd never heard before. Emily's OD'd, he said. I think she's dead. My mind reeled. Huh? What? I don't remember hanging up the phone. I don't remember starting the car. I do remember driving the wrong way, in the wrong direction, not toward Emily's apartment. I turned around and drove as fast as I could. I got there, and outside was parked an ambulance, and people had gathered. A couple of police cars. The side door to the apartment was open. I ran upstairs, as fast as I could, skipping steps. People seemed to be everywhere, in the hallways, on the stairway. I didn't see any of their faces. As I approached her apartment, there was a police officer standing out front in the hallway, just outside the door. He tried to block me. I said something I'd never said before. In my 30 years of being on television, I had never used this line. Don't you know who I am? I said, I know who you are, he said, but you're not getting in there. Suddenly, someone made a noise and he was distracted. He turned his head and I bolted on by him. I rushed into the apartment. There were emergency personnel everywhere, firefighters, EMTs, police officers. Emily's dad, my ex-husband, was standing in the living room. I can't even describe the look on his face. Tears streaming down his cheeks. I turned toward her room, where a group of EMTs were working on her. I asked, are there any vitals? They had her hooked up to a machine. They said, we're breathing for her. No vitals. I dropped to my knees. I started to pray and pray. For all I knew, I was praying out loud. People were all around me and I didn't care. But 30 minutes later, a man emerged from the bedroom. I think he was a firefighter. And he said, we can't save her. There's nothing more we can do. That was the night my daughter died. I wanted you to know the story, but I want you to know so much more. I want to tell you about her life, about the kind of kid that she was, about the efforts that I've made to try to make a difference in other people's lives through her story. After she died, I wrote a poem, An Incomplete Heart. I am here, she is not. Yet I must stay and figure out how to put her away. When she's always been right here, at the forefront of my mind. Worry, worry, fear. Worst fear now materialized. Somehow I breathe, in and out, in and out. I breathe without her. I was there for her first breath, but not her last. My work unfinished, services no longer required. My heart in pieces on the floor, one piece missing forevermore. Learning to live with an incomplete heart. Over the course of this podcast, I will talk to you openly and frankly about my grief and how I have learned to cope and to try to create meaning out of my daughter's meaningless death by helping other families avoid the same fate as mine. 
I'm also going to bring in experts in both the fields of grief and addiction, and I'll talk with other parents who have experienced the loss of a child and how they're getting out of bed each day and moving on without their children, still finding purpose and passion in their lives again. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join in our mission, go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org.